you guys welcome back to flickers of fear We're talking about a classic today so when you look back on it uh 1960 was a hell of a year for horror uh three movies in particular that were released that year made a huge huge impact on the genre going forward um and i'd argue that their influence is still felt in the genre nowadays so you know this many years later Two of these were, uh, of course, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which is, of course, a seminal film, and the lesser known, but likewise, like, just as important, I think, uh, Peeping Tom, the British film directed by Michael Powell, which we reviewed a little while back. But the third movie in that holy trinity, I can, at least in my opinion, I think it actually kind of went farther than either of those, at least in terms of, like, gore or being gruesome or whatever, and was, for my money, also the most disturbing of the three. I think because, maybe because it has kind of this, this real, like, weird, like, poetic beauty to it, but then it's, like, kind of, in parts, is, like, really overtly grotesque. And it also has this really weird, like, clinical, like, matter-of-fact kind of tone, which really, like, highlights the gruesomeness, like, really effectively. Uh, so the movie I'm talking about, obviously, is Georges Franju's Eyes Without a Face. Now, this was kind of weird to me, because I feel like, you know, uh, despite the storied French tradition of uh, you know, Grand Guignol, which, you know, in terms of live theater, where, you know, if you don't know what that is, that was like a, it was kind of like a, around like the, between the wars, I kind of feel like, like early 20th century, where they would do these live shows where they were trying to do like as realistic, you know, it was usually violence against women, there was a decapitation and murder and stuff like that, and they would try to show stuff like that was really, really real and like really gory. But even though they had that tradition of like going overtly horror, like in theater, for whatever reason, French filmmakers um, were kind of slower to jump on the bandwagon. They didn't really want to do that. Maybe it was because of some particular strain of, I don't know, like artistic elitism or something like that. I mean, although the Grand Guignol was attended by, you know, royal people and like celebrities and stuff like that, like in the early years of the 20th century, like I said, it still did have something of like a sensationalistic and maybe kind of a, like a lowbrow allure to it. I mean, they even had like boxes that you could rent like for patrons if you thought you were going to get too like sexually aroused by seeing all the violence and gore and stuff so they knew that people were like jerking it in there you know what i mean so they were at least they knew that there was like some kind of like thing between sex and violence but i still kind of feel like the perception of it was that it was kind of like lowbrow but filmmaking in france was kind of seen as more of an art form and I guess because of that, like, a lot of critics felt like horror films were sort of, like, beneath contempt. Now, obviously, like, back in the old days, like, of silent film, like, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, you had, like, George Melier and people like that that were doing kind of, like, fantasias or, like, fantasy-based films, but they weren't really horror films per se. Although there were a, a couple that kind of skirted with horror, but they were usually, like, kind of funnier or they were, like, trick films. So, enter producer Jules Bourcon. Now, he decided he was going to buck the trend and see if he could make some kind of splash with a movie in the very maligned horror genre. So he bought the rights to a novel by a guy named uh, Jean Redon, and this was a novel about an obsessive plastic surgeon who is attempting a face transplant on his disfigured daughter. 
So he bought the rights to the book, and then he hired the writing team of Pierre Boileau and Thomas uh, Narkajak, or Narkajak, I think is how you pronounce that last name. Uh, They also wrote, because I think I brought up their names when I talked about uh, Les Diaboliques, because they actually wrote the novel that Les Diaboliques was based on, and they also wrote the novel that Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo was based on. So those are the two guys uh, that wrote the screenplay. And then he brought on the director, Georges Franju, who had actually not directed anything but documentaries up until 1958 uh, when he made his kind of first foray into like fictional filmmaking uh, with a movie that was called uh, Head Against the Walls or La Tête Contre Les Murs. I don't know. I haven't taken French in a long time. So I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. But it means in English, it means Head Against the Walls. Now, from the beginning, the team that were making Eyes Without a Face, they had to tread very carefully The source novel uh, focused very heavily on a mad scientist, which was a topic that the German censors would not be all that uh, enthused about for obvious reasons. Um, Also featured like some animal cruelty or animal experimentation, uh, which, you know, with British censors, that was a big no-go there. And the novel was also excessively gory, like excessively bloody, uh, and French censors were not going to have too good a time with that, like they wouldn't approve of it. So they figured, well, maybe we can tweak the story a little bit to center a little bit more around the sympathetic daughter character rather than the mad scientist character so much. So by doing that, they kind of hoped that they would avoid too many problems, you know, with the censors. As it turned out, though, um, all of their efforts were pretty much for naught. They didn't really run into any problems with the censors, which is actually kind of crazy to me. Like if you've seen the one famous scene from this, I'm just like, oh my God, they let that pass in Europe? Okay. But like, cause there was like, you know, more tamer shit than that later on that they didn't let pass. I know it was different people, but you know what I mean? It was like a different time, but it seemed to like pass through the censors. Okay. But like when the movie came out in the theaters, Critics were not real uh, appreciative. They either dismissed it or they completely savaged it. Like some of the critics just called it sickening. Uh, some just kind of wrote it off as like a plodding German expressionist retread, shit like that. Like no one was all that enthused about it. Um, several writers and critics also wondered why a respected filmmaker like George Franju would debase himself by making a horror film because that's pretty much how they saw horror films, just like bottom of the barrel. And uh, also, a lot of audiences seemed a little um, unequipped to handle the film's more grisly sequences. Like I said, there's one very famous one in here. Uh, And apparently, and I don't know if this is true or not, because I know they say this about a lot of horror movies, even as recently as, like, the new Terrifier 2 movie. Um, You know, the audiences are, like, fainting away in their theater seats and whatever. So, you know, a lot of people were having a hard time, like... Which I I could see, like, in 1960, I could see it. Like, nowadays, no. I don't think anybody's fainting nowadays. But maybe in 1960, yeah, I could maybe see that. So, two years after its European release, and like I said, I don't think it really did all that great. It was just kind of like, meh, whatever, or, ew, that's disgusting. Um, The film actually got trimmed of its more, like, excessive elements, I guess, like some of the gore and stuff, and then it was dubbed into English, and then it was released in the United States under the completely nonsensical title, The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus, which has absolutely nothing to do with anything that is going on in this movie, other than there's a doctor in it. That's pretty much the only thing. So uh, the horror chamber of Dr. Faustus actually kind of played around the country on a double bill with another mad scientist movie, which was uh, called The Manster, which is like an American movie, but it was shot in Japan. Eventually though, as usually happens with movies that were kind of like ahead of their time, George 
Franju's like, you know, singular film would get the appreciation that it so richly deserved. And today, obviously, it's considered a highly significant piece of art in the horror genre in particular. Uh, very, it has been very favorably compared to like the work of Jean Cocteau um, and a lot of people's uh, best horror movies of all time lists, like a lot of critics and stuff like that. It comes up on pretty much every top 100, you know, horror movies ever made. It almost always turns up on those lists. Now, it is pretty tame by today's standards, um, although not as tame as you might be thinking. But um, I am going to say that Eyes Without a Face was like an enormous leap forward, I guess, in terms of what a mainstream horror movie could show. And although, like I said, it was unfairly scorned, I feel like, <laughs> at the time that it was released, it has been, nowadays, it's kind of come to be seen as like an important milestone in, I guess, what is like a still ongoing battle to have horror like be taken taken as seriously as any other like more acceptable genre i mean we've come a long way in that regard but we're still really not all the way there so eyes without a face begins with a great setup it just pulls you right into the story so there's this anxious looking woman and she's driving a car like along a road as, as you do now she looks into her rear view mirror like they pan across and she's kind of checking on there's somebody in the back seat a woman who's kind of wearing like a coat and hat and it's like you're not really sure if she's unconscious or drunk or dead or what's the deal uh so yes she's like looking back there and kind of looking around making sure nobody's looking in the car she like that she's acting super shifty so then she proceeds on to this kind of secluded spot along a riverbank and then uh proceeds to dump the woman's body in the river we then jump over to our scientist character, whose name is Dr. Genessier, and uh, he's giving a lecture about a new technique that he's been working on to kind of like graft living tissue and organs, essentially. Now, after the talk, he gets a phone call. Turns out that the police have fished out the woman's body that we saw earlier, like out the river, and because the woman's description fits the description of Dr. Genessier's daughter, Christiane, whose face was mutilated in a car accident sometime before and who disappeared 10 days ago, the cops want him to come down and have a look and say, maybe this is your daughter who's got, who has been missing. So the doctor goes down to the morgue and confirms that, yes, this faceless dead girl in the river is indeed his daughter. Case closed. Not so fast, though. It so happens that another woman who was about the same age and of a similar description to Christiane also went missing not long before. Now, this girl obviously had a face like last time she was seen, uh, but otherwise resembled Christiane enough that the authorities had also called that girl's dad like to come down and possibly identify the body. Dr. Genessier got there first, though. And he actually says, yes, my daughter, like I said, case closed. And then he runs into the other dad in the parking lot. And then the other guy is like, are you sure that that was your daughter? And he's like, yeah, I'm sure. And then he just starts being a real dick to the guy. Cause now the guy thinks that his daughter, you know, his daughter is still missing. And he's like, I don't know what to do. And he's kind of hoping to like commiserate with Dr. Genessier, but Dr. Genessier is basically like, nope, ain't got time for that. Like, oh, I'm supposed to comfort you. My daughter's dead. Fuck off. It's like that kind of thing. I'm like, mm, that is a cold ass motherfucker. You know what I mean? Yeah. So later on, we're back at Dr. Genessier's fancy pad and we immediately know that something untoward is up because not only do we see the woman who was dumping the body earlier, that she lives here too. Uh, it turns out this is Louise, the doctor's assistant. 
Uh, but we also see a young woman lying face down in a bedroom who is clearly Dr. Genesier's daughter and is just as clearly neither missing nor dead. So it comes to light that the automobile accident uh, Christiane was in essentially obliterated her face, like aside from her eyes, that's all that was undamaged. And her desperate and gonna say slightly maniacal dad has become engrossed in the task of finding a new face to graft onto hers. I don't know if I want to say maniacal because he's very cold, like I said, which like I said is what is kind of what makes it scary about him. But it's just maniacal in the sense that he's like obsessive. Like he's, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. You know what I mean? He just like keeps working on it, even though he keeps failing. So it's like that. It's, it's this relentlessness that's actually kind of like creepy about him. So he's been experimenting on some poor little dogs that he keeps all caged up in the garage. But now he's resorted to kidnapping girls and stealing their faces, pretty much. Uh, problem is, the operations that he's attempted so far have been unsuccessful. Like, Christiane's body rejected the skin grafts. And she's starting to become increasingly convinced that her dad is not going to succeed in this endeavor. Um, now, while she's around the house, she's actually encouraged to wear this very unsettling looking mask, like to cover up her injuries. Like the mask is all white and it's expressionless, like only the eyes show through. I feel like maybe this mask is kind of where the idea for like Michael Myers maybe came from because it's kind of looks like that. It's not rubbery or like it doesn't move. It's just like, it's completely like static. So it's just kind of like over her face like that. So anyway, at this point in the movie, it should be obvious that the body that Dr. Genesier identified earlier was obviously not his daughter. It was the body of that other missing girl whose dad had arrived too late to the morgue. Like I said, that makes that scene even more fucked up in retrospect because Dr. Genesier had to be, like I said, some cold ass motherfucker to stand there with this stern ass face and tell that guy that his own daughter was dead when he knew damn well that the body in there was actually that guy's daughter, you know what I mean? And then to, for him to be a dick to him, like, to, oh man, that's fucked up. Anyway, like Dr. Genesier figures that having everybody think Christian is dead will kind of like suit his purposes better. And he even has a funeral for her and everything at which, of course, the other missing girl is buried in her stead. So after that, uh, Dr. Genesier tasks his assistant Louise, incidentally, whose face he also kind of like restored to beauty although hers wasn't as fucked up as christian's as christian's was so you know it took a lot better i guess uh so he tells louise we need to go out and find another girl whose face we can steal pretty much so louise sets out like all over paris like looking for a suitable candidate um so she soon finds one in the form of edna who is this you know pretty young student who's looking for a room for rent so that's kind of how she kind of like spends a little while like befriending the girl. And then she's like, oh, I know this place that has a room for rent. So she basically lures her out to this, the doctor's like isolated manor where they live. And then she gets her in there, even though like Edna is clearly like real wary about it. She's like, I don't like this fucking situation. Like when she's driving out there, she's like, what the fuck? This is like way the hell out in the suburbs. This isn't what I wanted. But she's like, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But like once she gets in there, she's like, yeah, I gotta go. But then they, you know, the doctor comes up behind and chloroforms her essentially and uh you know just kind of sets about peeling off her face uh to slap onto his daughter's face <laughs> so you know it's a little fucked up so now this surgery scene which like i said is very very famous it's i guess it's pretty tame to like modern eyes 
but I'm trying to cast myself back to 1960 and people must have been like absolutely flabbergasted by seeing this shit. Like it must have been like, you know, just stomach churning. I mean, the camera absolutely, it does not flinch at all as Dr. Genesi is just like basically slicing around the perimeter of Edna's face with the scalpel, just like that. And then slowly kind of like inserting the scalpel, like underneath the facial skin, like he's separating it from the muscles underneath and then easing the whole thing off, like in one intact piece and like the face kind of like all bloody and fucked up underneath, even in black and white. It's pretty gruesome because you didn't usually see like sometimes you would see like some bloody stuff, in it, but they'd usually like cut away. Well, like look at Psycho, like look at the shower scene, like they didn't actually show a knife going into Janet Lee or anything like that. They just implied it. This one absolutely does not imply. It's just it's looking right at it like the whole time. It's just, like cut, 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 cut. You know what I mean? It's like that. So I'm like, <laughs> that's pretty hardcore for 1960. It was. Um, I think the creepiest thing about it, though. I mean, other than, you know, aside from how shocking it must have been in 1960, was that it feels very detached. Like, I think that's one of the reasons that I said earlier that I thought this movie was, like, a little more disturbing than Psycho or Peeping Tom. It's just because it's so, like, chillingly, like, dispassionate, both in the way that the violence is framed, like, the way that the surgery is framed, and in the portrayal of Dr. Genessier himself, who just comes across as this very, very cold... I mean, he loves his daughter. He's doing all of this for her because he loves her and he wants to restore her to her to normal or whatever. But he's just like so relentless in his pursuit that he's just gone completely off the deep end, but he's just like completely like stern and emotionless about it. And it's really, really creepy. By contrast though, like Christiane is, you know, obviously she's going to be the focus of our empathy in this movie. And she kind of like moves around the manor house, almost like a ghost. You know what I mean? She has like these kind of flowing house dresses on cause she can't leave the house, you know? So she just has these, not robes exactly, but like a house dress, like fancy. And she's wearing that really spooky blank mask. So like, you can't see like any of her expression you can't see her face so the acting performance here by um Edith Scobe I think is how you pronounce her last name um is actually like extraordinary she uh, she conveys so much emotion like so much guilt and anguish and despair like just through her eyes and the way that she moves she has these very very slow like very deliberate movements and she's very she's a very small woman she's very fragile and very bird-like and so she comes across as just like very vulnerable and wounded and you can't even see her facial expression so it's like it's outstanding now she's also clearly very conflicted about all of the horrors that her father is perpetrating in order to restore her beauty or whatever but at first it seems at least that she kind of feels powerless to do anything about it and for a time <laughs> at least for a little while in the middle there it would appear that maybe all this killing that they're doing uh is maybe going to bear some fruit after all because they cut off edna's face and then like you know they dump her body too and they successfully graft edna's face onto christiane and christiane is actually beautiful again like you get to see her without the mask like with the facial graft like on there but she's still clearly not sure that this she's you know she's having a dilemma like is this all worth it because you know all these girls and dogs and stuff like had to die for her to get that face back as the days pass however her body again starts to reject this new face as well and i mean the brief period of time where she was lovely again makes her return to deformity i guess like hit even harder to the point where now she just wants to die she's just like not having it she's sick of it 
Now, her father, again, he's relentless and he's still adamant that he can fix her. He can, you know, keep doing it. And he does actually kidnap another woman, like, for that very purpose. But in the end, um, you know, like I said, Christiane is just, like, not having it anymore. She's not going to go along with this evil. And um, so it's kind of her deciding to do that. And there's also kind of a thing where her... Uh, former fiance who still thinks she's dead. Um, he's starting to have like some suspicions because Christiane like calls him. Sometimes she calls him just so she can like hear his voice, but obviously she's not supposed to talk to him because she's supposed to be dead. But at one point she does like say his name and he's like, oh my God, that sounds like her. So then he starts like reporting it to the police. So the police kind of start looking into uh, this little nefarious situation there. So there's a little bit of that going on. You know, so a combination of those things kind of like brings about the downfall of like the mad scientist, right? It's like Christiane decides she's not having this anymore. She actually frees the latest captive, like the girl whose face they were going to cut off. Uh, she kills Louise um, and releases all the dogs, which I was like, yay, she released the dogs. At least most people wouldn't think of that, but she did. She released all the dogs that the doctor had been experimenting on. And in a satisfying bit of poetic justice at the end, the dogs actually maul the doctor to death and then chew off his face <laughs> as Chris Christian like wanders off into the forest. So, I mean, if you haven't seen it, like Eyes Without a Face, it's a fantastic film. I mean, it's elegantly shot, like especially like the early shots with all the fog and everything like that. It's just beautiful, beautiful looking. Um, it just has superb acting performances. Like I said, particularly Ada Scobe, who acts so much just with her eyes and like with her movements because you can't see any of her expressions. And at times it has like some really unnerving scenes, like a lot of that having to do with like the mask and like the surgery scene and everything like that. I kind of feel like it's been defined as maybe being closer to like noir or maybe being closer to like a thriller than a straight horror film. But I'm not really sure if people are just saying that because they don't want to call it a horror film because it's really good and it's like an art film. And again, there's that little... Like I said, it's not as bad as it used to be, but I still kind of feel like there's a little bit of a stigma around horror still. So I, maybe that's why people call it that. I mean, I'm not sure I agree, though. I mean, I think this is a horror film, if anything is a horror film. It's essentially a mad scientist story. And the thing about it is that it's influenced so many subsequent horror and like horror adjacent films like Jess Franco said that this was um, a big influence on a lot of his movies um, the movie The Skin I Live In uh, uh, Pedro Alma Almodovar that was uh, that was kind of like an homage to this movie as well I mean I'm not really sure how you could call it anything else I'm pretty sure it's just a straight horror <laughs> horror movie um, and I don't know why there people are reluctant to call it that also it has kind of like this dream like like a fairy tale quality to it a little bit and that really like juxtaposes very effectively with the clinical atrocities I guess like all the killings and stuff and all the face cutting and stuff that the doctor is doing and that's one of the things that really gives it that horror edge I feel like um, I mean, at any rate, it's, you know, it's rightly considered a classic at this point and for good reason. Um, if you have any passing interest at all in, you know, horror, in a serious interest in horror, like seeing like the roots of the stuff, then you absolutely have to see it like sooner rather than later. It's really, really good. And I really, really recommend it if you haven't seen it. Um, I watched it on HBO Max, but I'm sure you can find it uh, somewhere else as well. And as I said, if you really, if you want to know anything about the history of horror, it's really one that you have to see because it's really, really influential. So that will do it for this Flickers of Fear. Hope you guys enjoyed it and I'll see you guys again on the next one. Bye.